following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon passage comes from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, a question that you guys asked. How much should we forgive? Um, It was a question that was submitted in the box, and as you guys know, we've been working through questions for the last uh, last four sermons. Um, we, we got about four more left, and so um, we're going to continue to work through these questions that you guys shared with us that you wanted to get answers to. Um, this was a question, not only how much should I forgive, but, you know, um, the, the question even was raised um, should how do I forgive myself? And I, I thought that was interesting. And so we want we want to try to tackle this idea of forgiveness this morning. Um, I want to talk to you first about uh, June 19, 2015. June 19, 2015, a woman by the name of Nadine Collier, 47-year-old black woman, looked squarely in the eyes of a 21-year-old white male, white man and uttered these three words into the atmosphere of American history that are still reverberating through our conscience to this very day. I forgive you. She continued with these words after she spoke those three words. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. The 21-year-old white man that Miss Collier was speaking to that day was Dylan Roof, and it was just two days after he walked into Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, joined a small family of believers for a 
weekday Bible study, and at the conclusion of that weekday Bible study, commenced to pull out arms and begin to fire off shots, injuring and killing uh, many, nine in total. Of the nine that he shot and killed, one of those uh, dear people, dear believers, uh, was Miss Collier's mother. The world observed that day, two days after that horrific event, the world observed with amazement a woman's astonishing demonstration of grace. I forgive you. One writer uh, from, a, uh, from a popular publication um, wrote, he, he himself being an atheist, tweeted that day after watching that video and watching that sister share those three words, I am a non-Christian, I'm quoting him, and I must say this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. When Ms. Collier was asked a year later about her words on that day in front of the murderer of her mother and church family members, she said, forgiveness is power. It means you can fight everything and anything head on. I want to talk about that power this morning. I want to talk about the power of forgiveness. And I want to talk about that particular power because you asked me to talk about it. If you want to understand a particular area of Christian ethics that separates Christianity from pretty much any other worldview or any other religious dogma or any other philosophy, it is the idea of radical, unthinkable, unconscionable, unfathomable forgiveness. It separates Christianity from any other thought, any other thought pattern, any other worldview in human life, in cultures around the world. It is not something that's easily grasped, obviously, not something easily understood, in fact. Even the guys that walked with and followed Jesus struggled to wrap their arms around this concept of forgiveness. So as we read this morning in Matthew 18, what we find is a conversation between Jesus and one of those guys, one of the guys that followed and walked with him. This man was a man by the name of Peter. Peter hears or Peter inquires with Jesus based on the conversation that we'll speak about in just a moment. But he inquires of Jesus in verse 21 with these words. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Or how often will my sister sin against me and I forgive him? How often will my mom, my coworker, my 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 babysitter, whomever, how often will these people sin against me and I forgive them? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter's words are a continuation of a dialogue that's happening in Matthew 18. It's a dialogue about sin. In the early portion of the, the text, we are taught how to avoid sin and how to wage war against sin. In Matthew 18, for example, when you look at verse, when you look at verse, if I can get there myself, amen, we'll find it. There we go. Matthew 18, verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus is, op- Jesus is speaking in this particular passage about how we are to deal with sin, which is aggressive, reckless in some sorts. I mean, whatever you got to do to not do it, do it. You got to put yourself, you got to set yourself aside from a group of people because those group of people is drawing out temptation that's too strong for you. Then do it. If you got, if you got to set yourself aside from certain things, maybe you have to put your laptop away. Maybe you can't even use a laptop because of the things that you're tempted to do with that laptop. Then do it, but do whatever you have to do to stay away from it because it's better to sacrifice a few things than to suffer many things, namely the consequences of sin. So Jesus is talking about how to handle sin. But then as you move forward in verse 15, he talks about what to do in the matters, in in, in the cases in which sin does get the upper hand or temptation gets the upper hand and sin actually takes place and disrupts fellowship between one another. He says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The ideal of that being if the church gathers together and establishes a thing, then it is established in the matters that we are discussing with fellowship between one another. And so he says, if sin does get the upper hand and causes disruption in fellowship between two parties, then you should go to that person directly and you should address it one-on-one. But if that one-on-one doesn't do the trick, then you bring others along because maybe others saw that same sin in operation. Maybe, maybe along the way those others say, nah, bro, you were wrong. And that's fine too, right? But maybe they do say, no, actually, yeah, you're right. That was wrong for so-and-so to do that. And so you bring others along and you address the situation. If they're still rebelling and, and they're still bucking against the ideal of repentance, then you bring it to the church at large. And if they're still bucking against that, then you say, okay, obviously you're not taking sin seriously. And so this is what they call church discipline. And so you have in this text, in this chapter, how to avoid sin, and then you have in this text, in this chapter, how to handle sin should it happen. And then you get to Peter, and Peter says, well, what happens if he keeps doing it? How many times do I have to forgive him? He sucker punched me last week, and then everybody came out and told him how wrong he was for sucker punching me. And so he, he said, all right, all right, I'm not going to sucker punch you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to control my temper. And then next week, he cursed me out. He didn't sucker punch me, but he cursed me out. And then everybody came along, and I told him that he was wrong for cursing me out. And he said, man, I, I'm sorry, I got to control my tongue. And then, and then the next week, and the next week, he gossiped on me. 
And then, and then everybody came along and told him how wrong he was for gossiping. He said, man, I'm really, really trying, man. This Christianity thing is really, really, really hard. And so it's so, okay. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to gossip on you anymore, Peter. And so, and so he pulls back from that. And, but he just keeps doing stuff on and on and on. Every single time I look up, he's done something to me. How many times do I forgive this guy? That's the question. He's cheated me out of money. Told me he was going to paint my house. Gave him $300. He did a crummy job. What am I going to do with this guy? How many times do I forgive him? That's the context. Jesus says, 77 times. Some of you guys are getting out your calculator for some of the people that you've been around, right? You're like, we're about 68 right now. So I got, I got, right? got nine more to go. No, that's not, that's not what Jesus means. It's not what Jesus means. He's not looking for you guys to whip out a, a spreadsheet at the house, put it on your refrigerator for all the people that you don't really care for and start kind of charting it off as each day goes by. That's not Jesus' intent. Jesus' intent is to say there really is no limit to your forgiveness. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. If genuine repentance comes along, you forgive. If genuine repentance comes again, you forgive. And you continue to forgive. That's the context. What's interesting is that in many of our high doctrine churches, and you know, and I consider us to be kind of thinkers in this church, right? We we like to dig deep into the scriptures, and and what ends up happening is we end up fixing our attention on ideal number two, the the, the ideal of church discipline. And we very rarely fix our attention on what happens once a person does repent, right? How do we welcome that person? How do we love that person? How do we forgive that person? It's interesting there. I think, I, think, I think there's something to be said about the deeper we dig into doctrine, the more we have to be on guard against our own self-righteousness, right? Yeah. But Peter's words are commendable. He, he, commendable. he does say, hey, seven times? How about that, Jesus? That's pretty good, right? The rabbis only say three times. That's true. The rabbis say, hey, if you, you forgive a person three, three times and they keep coming back with the same thing over, hey, cut them loose, man. You're not, you don't owe that guy anything else. You don't owe that sister anything else. And so Peter has doubled, even greater than doubled, the amount of times that the rabbis said come seven times. That's, that should be sufficient, right? Peter's words are commendable. Peter's words are even reasonable. How often should we truly forgive someone after they've sinned against us? That's a reasonable request, folks. That's not, out, that's not in the outer space, guys. Getting hurt does not feel good. Getting hurt over and over again does not feel good. It is a reasonable request to ask, how many times do I have to really really forgive. Nevertheless, Jesus says 77 times. And he roots his, his commandment in a story. And this story is about a servant, and this servant is a servant of the king. And the king, in verse 23, wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
So the commandment of forgiveness is rooted in the debt of forgiveness. The servant owes the king 10,000 talents and he could not pay. And so he ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had until payment was made. And the servant fell on his knees and said, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for the servant, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Jesus compares the unforgiving man or woman to a servant in the king's court who has a debt that needs to be settled, and then he leaves the court after that debt was settled. And in verse 28, he finds a co-laborer with him. That same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe viciousness, aggression about what he is owed. The servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you, similar to the words that he used with the king. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Jesus compares the unforgiving man or woman to a servant in the king's court who has been forgiven 10,000 talents and chokes a man out, throws him in prison for 100 denarii. You say, well, okay, what does that mean, right? Because we talk in dollars and cents, <laughs> so, right? So what does denarii and talents mean? Well, denarii is where we'll start. It's actually a day's worth of a normal average laborer's wage, denarii. You work a good hard day, you get a denarii. And on and on and on you go, 365 days in all, 365 denarii would be a pretty good year for a normal worker, a normal servant in this context. This guy owed this man 100 denarii. That is some serious jack. You hear me? That's three, that's, what is that? That's like nine, that's like 100 days. That's three months plus. Some of y'all are like, man, I ain't got three months plus in my bank account right now. And he owes three months plus? That is serious money. You can understand why the guy's like, pay me what you owe me, man. I need this money. Until you compare it to the talents. You see, the denarii is one labor, one day's worth of wage. The talent is 6,000 denarii, one talent. Run the numbers in your head. We're, we're looking, we got five more zeros, right? To add on to, or four more zeros to add on to the 10,000 now. It's a lot of money. A lot of days. In fact, it would take about 200,000 years at an average servant's wage to pay, the tap, to pay the debt that he owed the king. So he was forgiven a debt of 200,000 years worth of work. And he walks out and he begins to choke a man for the hundred days of work that he owed him. 
Jesus is trying to help us understand the weight of sin in comparison to our sin towards each other versus our sin towards a holy God. When King David in the Old Testament went out and he sinned against us, sinned, sinned through the act of adultery, he committed adultery. There was a man that was in his army fighting his battles, and while that man was away, his wife was washing and bathing in a local lake, and David looked out from his kingdom window. He saw this woman, and he called this woman to be, or he uh, told his servants to bring this woman in, knowing that this woman was someone else's. And he slept with this woman, and this woman became pregnant, and he, he increased his sin um, in order to cover his sin by sending a letter to the battlefield through the, back through the hands of this woman's husband, saying, basically, put him on the front line so that we can make sure he gets killed so I don't have to worry about facing him and facing this sin. And so David continued on in this sin until God sent a prophet his way, a prophet by the name of Nathan. And David, when Nathan begins to uncover his sin and lay him bare, David begins to plead. He begins to beg, beg of God to cleanse him, to forgive him, to, to, to wash him clean. But what's interesting about that story is that David, out of all the things that he did to Uriah, David first looks to God and he says these words, against you and you alone have I sinned. Our sin begins with God. No matter what sin you commit one to another, your sin begins with God. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, as we, begin to, as we unpack what is the gospel, we talked about this ideal of sin being way heavier than we've ever thought it would be. The Bible says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's not a cute verse to say that we're not all perfect what it, what, or that we're not perfect. What it means is that we are all short of what we should be in the eyes of God. God is a holy, God is a righteous, God is a good God and a merciful God and deserves all praise, all glory, all honor, and we don't give him any of that. And we don't give him any of that routinely. And so the chasm between God's glory and man's sin is vast. And you see it play out throughout Scripture when, when, when you see the holiness of God on display and somebody, the instructions are, hey, don't touch this thing, and somebody touches it, and they die. Somebody tells one lie, and they die. Somebody, somebody makes fun or somebody uh, grumbles and complains or somebody moans or somebody belly aches about something that's going on and all of a sudden the ground opens up and people die. That's showing you the severity of sin. Sin is heavy before a holy and righteous God. And so the king is God in this story and the 10,000 talents is the debt of sin that we owe this God. And this God, out of mercy and pity, through his son, Jesus Christ, places the debt upon his shoulders as he goes to the cross and dies the death that we all should have died. And in so doing, wipes your debt clean. And then 
you leave church and you talk to your sister that you haven't spoken to in two months, or you talk to your uncle that you haven't spoken to in four months, or you talk to your friend that you haven't spoken to in five years, or you talk to your brother or your coworker and they say something to you and you say, mm, I'll never forgive you. The things you've said to me, the things you've done to me, I will never forgive you. That woman was so mean to me growing up, I will never forgive her for the things she's done. And it's understandable except for the fact that you've been forgiven so much. The debt of forgiveness roots the command to forgive. If there was no debt to be paid, then sure, we all could go out and hold all these things to everyone's charge. But our debt is so tremendous that we don't have room. Which leads me to the idea of the awe of forgiveness. Think about what God has done. Wiping a 10,000 talent slate clean. 200,000 years worth of labor. But not only does he do that, understand what God has done for you. He doesn't just clean your debt and say you're forgiven. He cleans your debt and says that you're forgiven. And then he says, and why don't you become my son? Why don't you become my daughter? But not only does he, he doesn't even stop there. He, do, he doesn't say, you owe 10,000 talents. We're going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to adopt you, bring you into my house. You're going to become my son. You're going to become my daughter. And then he says, and you can be co-heir. In other words, you can be a recipient of my divine inheritance. I owed you 10,000 talents, and now I'm reaping your riches. If we can just spend time thinking and dwelling on the awe of God's forgiveness for us, I believe it can help us muster up the strength to forgive. I think part of the reason why we struggle with forgiveness, whether it be towards our spouses, whether it be towards our loved ones, whether it be towards our friends, whether it be towards our family, I think part of the reason that we struggle with forgiveness is because, listen, is because we don't stress and think and dwell on the awe of forgiveness. Are you tracking with that? God has forgiven you, adopted you, and made you heir. What can we do but be forgiving people? So there's debt to forgiveness that roots the command. There's all to forgiveness that roots the command. But then there's, there's sovereignty to forgiveness that roots the command. Part of this idea that we have to begin to really, really fix our attention on as we think about what God is doing in the ideal of forgiveness is think about God's sovereignty at work in forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of faith in God. 
Forgiveness is an act of faith in God. As Christians, we must submit the transgressions committed against us to the belief that we have that God is truly sovereign and is working all things in accordance to his purposes and his will. So this means, this means, and let me say this, I don't say this lightly, but this means that the most harmful things done to us by, out, by others is not outside of his sphere, is not outside of his watch. In those moments of personal transgression against us, God is either doing something to us, through us, and or for us to bring about his salvific and sovereign plan of sanctification in us. And receiving glory through and for and from us. You forgive the evil committed against you because of your confidence in God. Your confidence that God will never waste your pain. God will never squander your tears. You don't cry empty tears. He's using that for something. I don't know what. I can't tell you. I'm not him. But he's using it. And forgiveness is rooted in that understanding that God is doing things that I don't understand, even with my hurt. He's doing something. The place that we see this most clearly is in the Old Testament, in Genesis with Joseph. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, and the favoritism of his father, along with the dreams that Joseph had about his brother all serving him at some point in the future, created a conflict with his brothers. We ain't going to serve you. Are you kidding me? You come out tomorrow, we're going to have something special for you. And so when Joseph goes out with his brothers, they make sure that Joseph finds his way to a good, nice pit that he can't climb out of. And then they sell him off as a slave. That's some hurtful stuff. And Joseph spends years in slavery that his brothers put him in. But Joseph, all throughout the journey, saw God's hand at work. And I think even if you would be honest with yourself, you might have some hurt, some deep wounds, right? That you look back on and you say, man, that person did me such profound harm. But as you look at that wound, you also see the hand of God, even in the midst of that wound, navigating you, ordering you, moving you, strengthening you, building you in such a way that you never thought that you would be able to overcome what you overcame, but you did. But you're still holding on to that, right? It's because you're not wrestling with the confidence that you should have in God. Joseph didn't hold on to it. As a matter of fact, if we look in Genesis chapter 50, after, after all this has happened, Joseph rises to second in command in Egypt because he makes his way all the way to Egypt through slavery. He rises to second in command because God uses him to share wisdom um, regarding dreams of Pharaoh. And then his brothers are in need of him. Their land becomes famished. And then they, fi they finally catch up or, and they finally come back together. Joseph brings them in. Joseph's father dies. They begin to get nervous about the fact that Joseph's father dies because they say, oh, my goodness, 
He was the only thing that was keeping Joseph from dealing with us. And now that he's dead, oh my goodness, what in the world is Joseph going to do to us for selling him in slavery? And Joseph's brothers, and it picks up in verse 15 of chapter 50, they saw that their father was dead. And they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Jesus wept when they spoke to him and his brother also, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, listen, do not fear. Listen, listen. For am I in the place of God? That's an interesting statement, considering that they're, they're coming, talking about, please don't pay us back for the harm that we did. But Joseph says, in response to them, am I in the place of God? Meaning that there is really only one person that can hold a grudge in all of the universe, because he's the only truly righteous one. And it is God, and I'm not him, so I can't hold a grudge against you. Do you understand that? And then he responds and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. That's the harm, that's the hurt, that's the betrayal. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yes, that harm done to you was meant for evil, but that was used or that will be used by God. Possibly a testimony, possibly an opportunity to encourage, encourage someone who's going through the same thing, possibly resilience and strength that is fertilized and cultivated through that hurt. I don't know what it's being used for, but I can assure you that you can take confidence that God will do something with it. And that should free you to forgive. Forgiveness is wrapped in the devil's plan, or the lack of forgiveness is wrapped in the devil's plan for us. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul speaks to the church, he tells them to a brother that's struggling, that they're struggling to forgive. He says, please forgive him. And he says, interesting enough, for we are not ignorant of the designs of Satan. Meaning that holding back that forgiveness is making room and opportunity for Satan to have his way. Lastly, let's close this out. Let's talk about quickly the stakes of forgiveness. In verse 31, he says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, from your heart. These are very, very, very strong words that are spoken by Jesus. And what he appears to be saying is very clear. Let's think about it. First, he calls the servant wicked. One of the mistakes that we often make in understanding forgiveness is the belief that we reserve the right to withhold it as much as we desire for as long as we desire. 
we make the mistake of believing that we can hold that debt over the heads of those who genuinely are repentant and looking for mercy. This text shows us that is not the case. In Jewish culture, a very interesting thing happens in the process of reconciliation. A person can go to a person and ask for forgiveness three times, genuinely and truly repentant. And if that person goes three times genuinely and truly repentant and that person does not accept that forgiveness or that person does not offer forgiveness in return for that repentance, then the Jewish teachers say, hey, he's released. And an interesting thing happens now the sin is no longer on the offender. The sin is on the offendee. You tracking with that? So what has happened is that this man, under the debt that he's been forgiven much of, cannot let go of the small debt that he has or that, uh, that his co-laborer owes him. Now the sin is on him. And the king calls him wicked. Not the offendee, or not the offender, but the offendee now is wicked. You understand the switch? This is what happens when we withhold forgiveness, is that it becomes corrosive, and it becomes sinful. And the king is no longer merciful, the king is angry. And the king with, removes that mercy, and the king throws the servant into jail until he should pay all the debt. Now, track with me. How much did he owe? 200,000 years worth. When is he going to pay that off? Never. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. The lack of mercy earns him the punishment of prison, the darkness of prison for the rest of his life and beyond. And, Peter, and Jesus looks to Peter and he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus' answer to Peter's question is forgive him as much as you genuinely and honestly, or, or as much as he genuinely and honestly seeks it, because this is what your king has done for you. Forgive, 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 forgive. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. Jesus moves on to say, for if you do not forgive those who trespass against you, your father will not forgive you. You say, well, what? that, so if I'm struggling with forgiveness, that means that, that I don't have any hopes of heaven? I don't think that's what it means. I do think what it means is that there is a certain, certain ethic. There is a certain lifestyle that should run consistent with the Christian faith, and that should be forgiveness. And that if forgiveness is absent in that lifestyle, then it means that you do not have a grip on the gospel. And thus, you should fear the outcome. I think that's what it means. Jesus is very clear about this in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 18. I do not mean it's like, I do not think it's like a one-off of type forgiveness, but I do think that if there is a clear ethic running through your life where you do not give forgiveness and you do not give mercy to those that offend you, then it shows that you don't understand 
what you've been forgiven of. And it shows you that you don't understand the mercy that's been extended to you. And that should cause us concern, grave concern. And so as you think about forgiveness, be mindful that when you forgive, you don't just simply say, yeah, I forgive you, and then it's over. When you think about forgiveness, you think about it in a Christian biblical way. You say, I will not dwell on this incident. This is what Ken Sandy wrote in Peacemakers, a wonderful book about conflict resolution, Christian conflict resolution. He talks about forgiveness in four steps. One, I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you again. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. When someone brings genuine repentance to you, you offer genuine forgiveness in that way. I will not hold it against you. I will not dwell on it. I will not bring it up. I will not go and run and tell everybody else about it. And I will not allow it to stand in the way of our fellowship. This is what our God has called us to. But folks, he didn't call us empty-handed. He called us with a powerful spirit to help us and aid us. And he didn't call us without motivation. He gave us the greatest motivation in the, in the universe, in all of human history. His own son standing in the place of people who owed God 200,000 years worth of debt. Eternities worth of debt. And Jesus comes down out of heaven from the right-hand side of God, the Father. He walks this earth, and he lives a perfect life that none of us would ever live. He goes to the cross and takes on the suffering, takes on the agony, takes on the pain that we all should have received because of our negligence and because of our rebellion against God. He forgave us and wiped the slate clean. How much more motivation do we need to do so towards one another? Amen. So may we go and may we do so. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you and we give you praise, glory, and honor. We ask that you would continue to stir in us a passion and a desire, Lord God, to, to walk circumspectly with you. We ask, Lord God, that you would continue to help us, Lord God. Um, help us, Lord God, overcome the wounds, overcome the hurt, overcome the, the depth, Lord God, of the scars that we've suffered from, from others, Lord God, and how that's caused us to withhold, withhold forgiveness. Father, help us stand in awe of what you've done through your forgiving of us. Help us stand, Lord God, with fear and trembling at the weight of our own sin and how far that separated us before Christ Jesus. And may these things motivate us and drive us, Lord God, to look to you and to remain confident, confident enough in you to offer forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. These things we ask and pray in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.